If you're following the Treasure Valley real estate market, you know that we're seeing changes. Demand is increasing and interest rates are decreasing. For any of you who are on the fence or have been considering when to make a move, reach out to Jesse Taff of Waypoint Real Estate Group and Bryce Gonzer of Fulcrum Home Loans. They'll get you a detailed update on the market and to review your situation to figure out what's best for you. Natalie and I wanted to share the most common skincare products we're using regularly from Treasure Valley Dermatology's Dene Skincare line. Or maybe it's pronounced Dean. We're not sure, and Dr. Portella is in Paris, so we're winging it. In the mornings, we use the Active CE Vitamin C Serum, followed by one of the moisturizers. We like them all. And finally, the Sheer Shield SPF 50 Sunscreen. A couple of nights each week, we use the Luna Active V Retinol Serum, followed by the same moisturizer. For us, they've all been great products. If you're curious which skincare products are right for you, check them out online at DermatologyBoise.com. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Welcome back to the conversation. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm Shane Plummer. In this episode, we have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Anthony Doerr. Anthony is an American author of novels, short stories, and essays. He's the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, has been translated into more than 40 languages, and has recently been adapted into a limited series on Netflix. He's also the author of the novels Cloud Cuckoo Land and About Grace, short story collections The Shell Collector and Memory Wall, and his personal memoir Four Seasons in Rome. Anthony writes for the Boston Globe and the Morning News Online Magazine, has been featured in The Atlantic and The New Yorker, was the writer-in-residence for Idaho from 2007 to 2010, and has taught at Boise State University. In addition to the Pulitzer Prize, he has received numerous prestigious awards and has been a finalist for many more. He was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and has called Boise his home for many years. All is deserved to claim aside, Anthony was a blast to speak with. He's the kind of guy you feel you've known for years and with whom you want to share a bottle of wine by a fire pit, or as he may prefer, a six-pack. He just has such a positive energy. We could have talked to him for hours, but restrained ourselves to focus on some of the themes of his novels, which include the power of ideas to mobilize people to action, authoritative control and censorship, technology's ability to make wonders or wreak havoc, the dangers of othering, and being a force for good in the world. We touch on how many of these issues have affected our local community, the value of libraries, our shared love of Idaho, and even discuss how to be great parents and raise good, strong kids who are ready for a tumultuous world. FYI, we spoke with Anthony over Zoom, which is usually wonderful, but today caused a few hiccups. Or maybe it was our internet connection. Who knows? I'm not a tech nerd. But there are a few matrixy sounding pings and a little static towards the end. We hope you bear with us because the conversation is well worth it. If you want to know more about Anthony, just Google him. He's kind of a big deal and is all over the internet. But you can get an overview at his website, anthonydoer.com. That's Anthony, D-O-E-R-R.com. Or by checking out one of his many writings, we strongly recommend that you read either All the Light We Cannot See or Cloud Cuckoo Land or to tune into the Netflix series of All the Light We Cannot See. Anthony, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Shane and Natalie, for having me. Yeah. 
basic introductions, should we call you Anthony? Should we, should we become best friends all of a sudden and start calling you Tony? What would you prefer? Uh, oh, I don't care. My friends call me Tony, but if I stick with Anthony, then people remember. Like all people right. don't always realize Tony and Anthony are the same name. All right, then I'm going to stick with Anthony then okay. for now. How do you feel? Are you okay I'm, calling I'm him Anthony? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've written <laughs> some books that have garnered deserved acclaim, such as All the Light That We Cannot See, which won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Uh, I read it, and it was powerful. It was wonderful. Um, Natalie has read it, along with Cloud Cuckoo Land, so she's one up me on that. Um, we'd love to discuss some of the themes, which many of your works have kind of been the vehicles for, and specifically how they're relevant to us in the Treasure Valley and what we're going through in Idaho. But before we do that, introduce yourselves. For those who may not be familiar with you or your literary contributions, how would you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, well, first, it's just a joy to be with you guys. I've been catching up on your podcast the past couple of days. Thank you. Exercise bike, and it's been a real joy. Thanks for all you're doing. And congratulations on all the success and attention you're getting. It's pretty cool. It's Thank exciting. You. Yeah, it's great. Other people, anytime other people are making stuff in the Treasure Valley, it's really exciting for me. So thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm. I fell in love with an Idaho girl after college and uh, moved to Boise in I say 1998. Uh, uh, Shauna grew up here. She went to Boise High. Uh, I had a fellowship in Rome and a fellowship at Princeton University in there. But pretty much since then, we've been living here. And uh, yeah, I've been writing books. I published my first book right after 9/11. They pushed it back, so that's always easy for me to remember. It was uh, January of. Uh, 2002. It was called The Shell Collector. It's a collection of short stories. And then I published a novel a couple of years after that called About Grace. And uh, yeah, it's hard to think, you know, I was usually the youngest person in the room at like all these writers workshops when I would teach. And suddenly now I'm 50 years old and all my <laughs> hair is gone. And uh, I'm like, oh, yes, I guess I've been doing this for a long time. You know, when I started, I made uh, money by publishing in print magazines. You know, that was kind of my job. I wrote for Condé Nast Traveler for a long time. And you know, my first short story was published in the Atlantic Monthly. I got $3,000 for it, you know. Big like, money. Now oh, congratulations. <laughs> For a hundred years, they published a short story in every issue, and uh, you know they published Mark Twain, and then, wow. you know they stopped. Maybe probably this is a long time ago now. Probably like two thousand nine, they stopped publishing a story in every issue, and you know people just don't read print magazines the way they used to. You know, I look at my kids that they'll walk past the New Yorker or Sports Illustrated on the counter over and over, just looking at their phones. I'm like, yeah, it's a new world out there. Totally. Now there's but there's new avenues like what you guys are doing. You know, there's ways to make digital content and make your own way and be an entrepreneur and. Uh, you know, not be beholden to editors in New York, you know, the whole business of publishing kind of runs out of New York. And so I've always been um, kind of unusual in that I live in Idaho. And often, especially on the East Coast, we get questions like, what do you why do you live in Idaho? Mm -hmm. uh, and now the secret's out a little bit, you know, a lot of people are kind of getting it. Oh, it's pretty nice here. It's pretty quiet here. So uh, when and why did you decide to commit your career to writing? Oh, yeah. Gosh. Uh, I always think I I wanted to do it first being the youngest of three siblings, I think helps. I think there was a lot more pressure on my older brothers to get like real jobs from my folks. And my oldest brother went to MIT at age 17 on a full ride. And I think my parents were like, okay, we were successful. <laughs> like, uh, we, you know, the other two can be <laughs> total screw ups. Uh, so first shout outs to my brothers for kind of, you know, taking the bullets and getting real jobs. I, uh, after college, I wrote for the newspaper in college and secretly wrote short stories and notebooks, but I was too shy, too afraid to tell anybody that I was doing that. 
Uh, I did apply to a poetry class in college where you had to submit some poems. The poems were horrific, although of course I didn't know that at the time. Didn't get admitted. So I had a whole like huge insecurity about that. You know, the poets in college were like, these pretty girls who were like all black and red, like in the chapel, these poems in hushed tones, very intimidating. <laughs> so I, I just didn't think now. it was like something you could do. I never really met a living writer. Uh, you know, I thought novelists were dead or they lived in Paris or something. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an avenue that was seemed available to me. My dad was a big reader, but it was all spy novels and Tom Clancy and stuff. And my mom was a science teacher. So we had lots of like, Rachel Carson or Carl Sagan books in the house, but it wasn't like being a novelist is a, is a path you can take son. That wasn't yeah. really something that was said in the house. Uh, so uh, it was, it was until maybe two years after school, I was working in Telluride, Colorado. I was a cook uh, skiing a lot. And um, I realized I was reading a lot more than my friends and maybe smoking a little less weed than a lot of my friends. And some of the guys we worked with were in their forties and they, you know, they were incredible skiers, really comfortable in the backcountry, but they, um, they were still cooking in restaurants. And I just wondered, uh, I think I'm always going to regret it if I don't start pursuing this more seriously. And thankfully, uh, you know, there were graduate schools, there are graduate schools in so I went and got what's called an MFA, a master's in fine arts. It was just a way I had worked enough to know what a gift it was to wake up in the morning and read and write and play around with language instead of go make sandwiches. That was like <laughs> this incredible moment. I'm like, wait, we get up and we just read books now? This is it? And everybody's okay with this? Yeah, that yeah. would be amazing. That's yeah. awesome that you saw that you were surrounded with these with these other guys that almost gave you a glimpse into an optional future and you got a chance to choose and say, do I want that or do I want something else? And I mean, not to disparage anybody's choices in life, but like you had a visual aid to help you out. That's great. Yeah. My father-in-law calls it the rocking chair theory. He's like, you know, can you cast yourself forward to say, if you're lucky enough to live till you're 80, do you want to be sitting in that rocking chair and think regretfully on some of the choices you made in your life? And uh, you know, we're like the first video game generation where maybe you think you get three guys or three lives or something, but you don't. You just get this one trip through life. And it, as you guys know, as parents, it just hurdles by so unbelievably quickly. You know, you blink and your kids have like wispy mustaches and their feet stink and they're like, get out of my room. You're like, what just oh. happened? You're a baby. And then like lately I've been traveling for Netflix stuff and like the our bathroom at home doesn't have great lights, thank God. Because you go to these like hotel bathrooms and you look at your face in the mirror and you're like, what, what happened to me? Like, what is happening? It's to my face. Yeah. yeah so why not, ch just like you guys are doing, why not chase stuff that you care about while you still can, you know, while you can still do it. So I'm really grateful. I think some of my friends or students who decide that they wanted to be writers or, or painters or quilters or musicians, and they get started a little later in life when you're accustomed to like having two cars and having a mortgage paying for direct TV or something. It's a little harder. You know, when I got started writing, I was making, I think the first year I had a tuition stipend, which is great, but I think I made about $8,000 a year. And, but I was 24, so it didn't matter. You know, you oh, just yeah. go 
Chinese food and save it all and eat the rice for five days. And so, yeah, I look romantically back at those times. But, you know, of course, it was all very fearful. And you don't you only have two years of school and you hope you can get published at the end of it. But there's no guarantee. It's not like going to dental school where when you finish, you get to be a dentist. It's not like you are a writer when you finish uh, graduate school. I kind of put myself in the place of your parents and I thought, were they terrified at your ability to feed yourself by choosing this career? Or, I mean, it just writing does not seem like the most lucrative choice. And the people that make it big in writing are kind of few and far between. There are a lot of people that write and, and few of those are good and few of those, um, you know, can really form an amazing career out of it. I mean, you, you're incredibly skilled to be able to do that. But I just thought as a parent, I guess there comes a point where you just got to let it go and say they're passionate, they love it, they're happy with it, and let's see where it takes them and support them. Yeah, that's a great insight, Shane. Yeah, I think about that now with my own kids. I'm like, uh, you know, my parents allowed me to take crazy risks. I went to New Zealand for a year with, I made $3,000 in a canning plant in Alaska and just went to New Zealand and you know, they were like, I guess they were okay. I sent them little airmail letters. I remember those little light blue airmail letters, like once every two weeks. There was no email or anything. Yeah. So. so then the second book was a novel. And then I published a, a, a memoir. We got to move to Rome when, when our boys were born. I had this fellowship at Princeton University. My wife was pregnant with twins. Uh, uh, she has a C-section scheduled and about three hours later, I go back to our rental apartment and get a bunch of her stuff. And I just checked the mail and in the mailbox was an envelope from the American Academy in Rome offering us a year. My kids are three hours old and it's offering us a chance to move to Rome, Italy from Boise, Idaho for a year. Mm -hmm. I go back to the hospital. I'm like, uh, hey, how are you feeling? Like, is any of those drugs worn off? Are you on morphine? Uh, have I met my kids yet? Hey, do you want to move to Italy? Uh, and you know, that was during that time that I started a novel. The idea is you get you get time to work on a longer project. So that's when I started this novel on the life we cannot see. Uh, during that year, we were in Rome and raising those kids uh, in a foreign country. It was the biggest city I'd ever lived in. I couldn't speak Italian. Uh, so that that book uh, was kind of detailing that journey in this new country of parenthood and, and this new country of Italy for us. And then come back home and I realized, oh, I barely made any progress on this novel. It took me nine more years to finish all the light we cannot see. And uh, yeah, when it first came out, it was, uh, uh, you know, went to bestseller list. It was really, really overwhelming compared to my first four books. It was um, a lot more attention. I wasn't used to that kind of attention. Uh, wasn't used to that much email and that kind of um, running a business almost uh, along with trying to be a writer. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the movie rights sold the first day the book came out to Fox Searchlight. And back then, so this was 2014, um, as you guys know, as listeners know, like, you know, TV hadn't quite like peak TV wasn't quite there. And so the natural idea was a feature film. And this producer named Scott Rudin has done a bunch of amazing stuff. They worked hard on trying to adapt the book. It's a 530-page novel, adapt it um, into, you know, whatever feature length. I think probably they were looking at like 130 minutes max, maybe 120 minutes. Um, And it just always felt really compressed, I think, to everybody. Um, And so when the rights expired... Uh, yeah, Netflix, this uh, director and producer named Sean Levy, who's most famous for Stranger Things at that point, season one was out and like season two is just coming out. And his pitch was, we can be more expansive. We have more room in a limited series. What When we were growing up, we called miniseries. 
now it's a limited series. Limited series. Oh, did they change the? It's not a mini oh, yeah. series anymore. It's, it's meant to be one season. It's limited. There's a defined end and a beginning, or like, beginning and end. And so, yeah, that's how they define it now. And I love it. Like it's, it's, it's like long form film. Gives you time to explore, to take different characters and storylines. I'm a huge fan of it. Like when when cool. limited series started coming out on like HBO, had great content. It's like, oh yeah, this is gonna catch. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, it's fun. Okay. I, I was thrilled there was more room. That was his big yeah. big pitch. And he's a dad. Um, you know, he's, he has four girls, and uh, really at the core of this novel, all that we can see is this relationship between a uh, father and uh, his blind daughter. Her name mm-hmm. is Marie. And so Sean uh, had been given the the novel by his daughter back when it first came out. And so he had a real kind of father-daughter love connection to this story. And they were open to trying blind actors, which they were open to at least trying to pitch Netflix on the idea of sure. trying blind actors, which was a, an extremely hard sell. Netflix wants super beautiful people that people recognize to put on like the little icon on the front. So you're like, oh, I know who that is. I'm going to click on Emma Stone. That makes sense to me. Uh, but it's a you know different thing if you're going to take somebody who's never you know no familiarity at all mm-hmm. for audiences. Uh, so I thought that was really brave too. So I was like, sure, let's try it. Let's see what happens. They were originally talking maybe six one-hour episodes, and some of the earliest scripts were breaking into six parts. Uh, but they winnowed it down to four. They got the screenwriter Stephen Knight, who did a pretty well-known show called Peaky Blinders, and. Um, He's done a bunch of really cool stuff. Uh, he's quite good at cross-cutting. There's a lot of cross-cutting in the novel. The novel ping-pongs back and forth between a German boy named Werner and a French girl, the French girl Marie. And so he was he was really skilled at moving back and forth in time and moving back and forth between these characters in the early versions of the scripts. But, you know, I, I live in Idaho. I'm writing fiction the whole time. I don't really know. When I want to blow up a building... It's free, you know, when they want to blow up a building, they have to think of like how do they work through money and stuff. So often I was just like, you know, these are experienced storytellers. I'm going to trust them. Um, You know, I'm going to just try to have this experience. Um, The pandemic hits. uh, My kid's a senior at, you know, at Boise High and he's really into filmmaking. So I'm like, hey, is there any way we can visit the set? So, you know, they're really kind about all that stuff. Um, Okay. But in the end, you know, I was mostly just a cheerleader and a spectator and watching the whole thing. Uh, you know, I have, of course, no idea that this strike is going to happen. There's, of course, a writer strike and then the actor strike, the summer stars. And it's about three full days before I realize, oh, that means they can't do any promotion either. Like, you're not allowed to post on your Instagram. Mark Ruffalo's in the show, for example. Mm-hmm. The guy can't even say, like, in a podcast interview of one hour, he's not allowed to say during minute 32, hey, I'm going to be in a show called All the Light. We cannot see. Not allowed wow. to do any of that. Dude, wrapped up into the drama of this whole different industry. Crazy. <laughs> right. And I'm fully unequipped. Like, I'm a bald dude who gets my clothes, like, at the elephant's perch and catch them, or like, you know, I don't. <laughs> hey, that's and a great place. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, We're going. Toronto Film Festival and I was teaching at the University of Michigan I taught an eight-week class there so I've only brought like one duffel bag full of stuff and they're like yeah you know well you'll be on the red carpet with Sean the director and I'm like okay like I got Adidas's like what am I supposed to wear (laughs) on my feet (laughs) you know so there's so much like insecurity starts kicking in like look I'm I type on a computer you guys get that like I don't really get a lot of sun (laughs) wow wow Interesting. So I was nervous. All fall was a lot. You know, Sean and I felt so much for Sean. You know, he 
is terrific at publicity, but it's also not, you know, he's the director. He directed all four episodes, which is this huge Herculean lift. He's in the middle of filming Deadpool 3, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's supposed to just be like, now I got to do one one day in New York. He did, I think it was 16 five minute interviews in a row without a break. Oh, my gosh. it's so you can't you get to the point like in Toronto, I think one day we did 12 in a row or something. You don't remember what you've told people. It's yeah. all cliche suddenly coming out of your mouth because it's you've said the same sentences so many times. So I'm used to book publicity where, you know, especially like in Europe, they're like, this is a one hour interview, Anthony, in France. We have no commercials. Let's begin with your theory of beauty. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the Netflix stuff is like, hey, we're from Hollywood Reporter and we've got 13 seconds and the two of the questions are going to be about Deadpool. So tell us about your show. You have 11 seconds. You know? uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Different I world, man. To, to uh, Levy's um, um, podcast with Speechless. How, did you listen to that one? Oh yeah. With Smartless. Oh, Smartless, not Speechless. Smartless. Smartless. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, it was so funny, but he was talking about, yes, this idea of, of finding a blind actress Um. And that uh, the person who to played Marie was not uh, was not an actress. Like she had no experience, is from my understanding. Um, and I was a little hesitant, I will say, to watch the show. I think I've been burned by some of my very favorite books in their adaptations. Uh, I don't want to say anyone. And the films just take a dump, right? (laughs) It's like you're emotionally tied to this book. It impacted you. You're like, oh, great. Are they going to do it justice? And I think it's just hard. It's hard to make that transition in in, in a totally different medium. And as a consumer, you just end up getting... Let down sometimes, and and obviously that I don't want to I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, I I loved the series. I thought it was um I thought it was beautiful. It was it was different with the ending, you know, specifically. And I don't necessarily want to say what that is. How did you feel about seeing some of these changes? Because especially in the in the last moments, I'm like, well, that was a a very different direction of the experience as the consumer. Because in the book you obviously, you let us feel some discomfort, which I appreciated. It, it made sense, but the Netflix series was a little bit, uh, you know, warmer. How did you feel about that? Yeah, and you, you, I mean, great question. There's so many feelings. It was like, we need to have a six pack and talk about it for three hours and really get to the <laughs> bottom of it. Yeah, you worry, especially with the warmer, you, you worry, um, is it romanticizing an incredibly violent and brutal time? So I have those concerns, like, is there a, a morality issue here? Uh, ultimately, I have to tell myself an adaptation, the verb adapt means to change. And there is just naturally going to be changes when you take something, say it's a, say the book is a painting and then you're making a song out of it. You're, you're changing the fabric of it entirely. You know, a novelist, I get to play in language. I get to play with like pattern and mimic even the way say Natalie thinks it can try to dive as far into her thoughts as possible. I can evoke smells I can also zoom all the way up out of Natalie's head and then dive into Shane's head and be like, now I can enter Shane's thoughts in the, in, in the way that like a filmmaker could never. A filmmaker has to deal with surfaces. They can use music in ways to manipulate a viewer's emotions in ways that maybe a novelist can't. But even in that sense, we can use the rhythm of sentences. We just have so many more tools at our disposal when you're working with inexpensive little black marks on a white page. Really, they're free, sure. you know. Um, 
So the range of storytelling techniques that you can use as a novelist is so vast. And that's why it's infinitely exciting and interesting to me. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of it because there's just this huge amount of tools we can use. You know, Sean's under pressure from Netflix to make sure there is some kind of a, a narrative cliffhanger at the end of all three of the first three episodes anyway, and then a big fulfilling resolution at the end, because that's what people want when they're home from work and they're tired. They yeah. want satisfying endings. You know, they want something that gives them a feeling of completion and you, you don't want to be too uh, frightened. You know, um, if, if uh, the big, whatever, the new Spider-Man seven die, you know, Spider-Man dies like an hour in, and then it's just like, 30 minutes of black screen at the end, you know, viewers aren't going to like, you've yeah. got to give people what they think they are coming for. Um, you know, that's the reason I like sports, for example, and I'm tired after work is you get a fulfilling narrative where, you know, there's going to be a resolution. There's going to be a winner and a loser at the end. Uh, so I totally understand that it's a different thing that they were making. Uh, I was just so proud that they were able to cast Aria. Aria is the Marie, the older version of Marie. Mm -hmm. Nell is the younger one. Aria plays probably 80% of the of the time. She's the teenage Marie. And yeah, she had tried to act as a child and uh, been told like, well, you know, you're not going to be able to find your marks. You're not going to be able to read the script. Um, and so, you know, this was a dream of hers. They did a worldwide search for a blind or low vision actor. You know, they're searching all of, they have Netflix as offices everywhere. So they're searching like in New Zealand and London. Sean said he watched over a thousand audition tapes, find her. Uh, and she really does a phenomenal job. And this is the first time really in the history of TV and cinema that we have a low vision actor playing somebody who's blind instead of somebody just pretending to be blind. Both of them did wonderful. Like it, it was so, sometimes I think that when you choose an actor that's not blind in this case, like how do you get the emotion? How do you get the authenticity of it? And I thought, oh, are they going to botch this with like actors that are trying to be blind? And how on earth could you try to be blind? Like I kept thinking that like as an actor, that must be terrible because you're always, you cannot choose to not see. And so to be able to find actresses that check that box, that just made for a much better experience. I loved it. I'm appreciative of, of all this work that you're saying, thousands of screenings. That's a lot of work and uh, it paid off. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, Sean says it really helped the show too. You know, he was learning all the time, you know, these um, little things like um, once she, she would say, have I been in this house for over a week? Uh, then I'm not going to use my cane inside. Um, oh, wow. You know, I wouldn't have to feel my way around the walls anymore, Sean. Like, so she's also contributing all kinds of realistic things to the show and helping uh, really give a more accurate portrayal of what it might be like to try to avoid the cliched representation of blind people. Then yeah. Netflix has done an amazing job reaching out to the disabled community. There's a whole... Um, audio description element to the show. We did an event at the Library of Congress in DC, which was so cool. The blind community came and the whole thing has an audio description so that each action on the screen is being narrated as well. And that's available to anybody who streams the show. So I, it's been a real education for me as well as um, accessibility and watching TV for folks who have low vision or blind. It's pretty been great. That's no, great. Um, the book... And I know that you've written a couple of books and like, we don't need to um, um, focus our conversation on just one. It's the themes that I think are interesting for me. 
I'm not a literary critic or anything like that, but some of the things that stuck out to me were the themes of the power of ideas, good or bad, to mobilize individuals and masses of people, um, the conditions that are conducive for an idea to catch fire, the idea of power and control, control of thought, control of values and resources was amazing to me. The struggle between empathy and accountability stuck out to me. And finally, the value of scientists, uh, science and scientific thought. These are all things that, that I don't know, I kind of form my questions and my, my uh, insights around these things. But man, you really ran the gamut. There was a lot well, that, and, that came and out of you it. I was like, Shane, you've got to try to get Cloud Cuckoo Land in before. I know, but because, don't spoil it. No, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just saying uh, that in you know you take all those and then you bring in Cloud Cuckoo Land, which I'll just say, I don't know if we'll go into it, but it, it gave me some, some insight I needed in a, a very unexpected way. But then relating those two books together with the idea of who controls uh, the narrative, why do we try to pull the narrative back, but also how these narratives change over time and are reinterpreted and rearranged. And reading those two incredibly different books back to back was really powerful for me, um, even though they they are very, very different. Um, but so many of those so same themes just kept popping up in both, which was really exciting, I, I guess, just to kind of compare about compare them. Sorry, yeah. what were you saying? Oh, well, I was just, um, I don't want to go on and on, but I do want to set you up to kind of get your thoughts on the idea of power and control, Anthony. I was struck by how how much in all the light that we cannot see the Nazis did to control what their own people thought. There was this line in the book when Werner's sitting in school and they're broadcasting, you know, the propaganda. And they said, minds do not need to question. Minds need certainty. Do not trust your minds. They controlled what they read by villainizing foreign or unapproved writers. I'm first of all, I'm I'm dumbfounded by the idea or that people were slow to question the obvious, ridiculous assertion that if it wasn't written or created by a German, it had absolutely no value. They controlled what they heard by outlying radios. They controlled what they did with fear. I mean, brutality, threats, intimidation. In fact, they seemed to be as brutal to their own people as they were to their enemies at times. I'm intrigued at how quick they were to use fear on their own people and how successful they were at gaining their people's compliance. The idea of control was just crystallized. I mean, there was this line where Frederick, where Frederick says to his friend Werner, he says, your problem is that, how do you say it? You still believe you own your life. I just thought, oh. Anyway, so that's the setup. Question. Do you believe that there's a, do you feel that there's a conscious, intentional effort by groups or institutions to control behavior of people by controlling what they believe? How do you feel about yeah, that? Of course, of course. Thanks so much, Jane. Yeah, you are a literary critic. Good work. Uh, <laughs> uh, new career. Yeah, well, watch out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Natalie brought it up earlier beautifully. Um, yeah, I've always been interested in how technology can be used as both a tool of control, as point out Shane, and also a tool of liberation. And, um, you know, the original seed for all the light, I just wanted to explore radio and take a reader back to a time when to hear the voice of a stranger or a loved one or a political figure in your living room in the way, or in your head, the way people might be listening to this podcast was incredibly strange and new thing for the history of our species. 
the Greeks were able to send binary messages uh, across by lighting pyres on mountaintops, you know, saying like an invasion has happened. You could light mountaintop to mountaintop. You could send a very simple message. And Nigerians had a system of drumming that you could send slightly more complicated stuff over distances. You could say like Natalie's having her baby or something. And you could, you could send sort of sophisticated stuff. But the really for the first time in the 20th century, we're able to have complicated conversations. We're able to tell complex stories across distances. You don't have to be in the same room or the same arena as somebody. And that is what we grew up with. And it's incredible how quickly a generation takes that for granted. So I wanted to transport a reader back to the time when this was sorcery. This was literally sorcery to sit in your bed the way Werner does and listen to somebody who's far away, who's outside the borders of his own country. Um, you know, that's shocking. That's brand new. And what does that do for people? And the whole time, I hope readers or even to uh, viewers of this series are thinking about what these new technologies in our lives are doing at the same time. You know, these phones that we're always staring at, what kind of changes are being wrought on society by having this new technology arrive without necessarily judging. A good novelist, I think, just demonstrates and doesn't necessarily, you know, make a, a statement. I'm just trying to show that here in the Second World War, radio was a tool of liberation, but it's obviously a tool of oppression at the same time. Um, you know, this probably the second most evil dude in existence, Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda for the Nazi party, realized so early on, so like 1931, 32, he's realizing that the radio has this incredible power to determine the narrative. And so he lowers the, they were actively working by 1933 to lower the price because radios were expensive. They were for rich people at the beginning. They're working really hard on building this thing. It's called a Volksempfanger, a people's receiver, really half the price of all the other radios on the market. And they deliberately reduce its sensitivity so that it can really only receive national stations. They also made it cool. They made it cool looking. They used a very early kind of plastic called Bakelite in it so that young people are badgering. Your kids are saying, Shane, get me this thing. I want this thing in the house. And so you kind of want it too, because you're like, this is more fun. Like, let's listen to some broadcasts. Let's listen to music. Uh, you know, let's have some comedy shows. Meanwhile, in between those things, you're getting Hitler's speeches. You know, you're getting, then suddenly it becomes mandatory for everybody to be listening to this. They're broadcasting these broadcasts on loudspeakers in public spaces. Then, as you point out, it becomes illegal to listen to foreign broadcasts. And by the end of the war, the Gestapo is punished. It's punishable by death to listen to foreign broadcasts. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if you are caught modifying your receiver, to get short waves, also punishable by death. So yeah, it's of course cruel to their own people, but it's an incredible way to take a lie and multiply it thousands of times over. And that stuff as I'm writing the book is happening in our society in ways when we see disinformation occurring around me as I'm finishing the book. And then not even, of course, the pandemic is still years away. And, you know, when I see that, you know, all the light became even more relevant to me when, you know, in the pandemic and you open your phone, it's like, if you get the vaccine, you could become a cockroach or something. And I'm like, <laughs> think, look at this, look at how these, um, you know, just how these narratives can be controlled and how a compelling video, look at Israel and Gaza right now, a compelling video that can be totally fake or taken from a totally different conflict and just put a little new font on the top. 
That stuff is so relevant. Wait till if we talk five or 10 years from now, wait till like I can make a video of Shane saying crazy stuff with AI. And it is Shane, Shane's voice. Pretty soon we're going to be able to take dead relatives and have them say stuff. They won't even be alive. But if we have a long enough recording, if you had a podcast series, you know, AI is going to be able to learn at the way Natalie speaks. It's going to be incredible. It's going to, what is truth going to be? What is reality going to be? So the more we can equip each other to know these things are coming, try to think critically about how they're used. You know, um, the internet is an incredible, YouTube's an incredibly powerful tool to say, teach how to repair a tractor in Mongolia, teach yourself French in rural Idaho. That's incredible, but can also radicalize young people in a way that can be quite dangerous. And most importantly, and corporations can use it to control truth. You know, they're the only real goal of, say, Facebook, the parent company of Instagram or TikTok, is to make profit for their shareholders. It's not to tell the truth necessarily. And it might seem harmless when you're talking about whatever, what cosmetics to buy or what how to change your snow tires, but uh, it's a little more harmful when you start thinking about how, you know, how is a nation going to try to control the narrative when they might not be behaving perfectly well to try to um you know say oh violence is okay in this case so i'm thinking of what you're saying and i'm thinking okay well how do i teach my kids right like what are some of the core principles that i can teach my kids i can't i'm not great at telling them or being able to to differentiate what i see on the internet fact from fiction or fake right these are three different things floating around out there but what can i tell them and you kind of hinted at it is consider the objectives and the incentives of your sources of where you're getting this. You got to think about things like this. And if you just take everything at face value and think, and you assume, oh, they've got my best interest at heart. They're trying to tell me the truth. There was another line in the book that it was towards the ends. And, and I forget what the context was, but it was like, they, they meaning people, they assume that the world is a safe and rational place and it is not. And I thought, Oh, that's one of those I'm things. I'm going to embroider that and put it in my house. Oh, like that's one of the things that I, <laughs> that I struggle with all the time is the cold nature of reality. And I mean, that's been kind of my own personal coming of age story is realizing this, right? You realize, oh, I grew up in this comfortable home and I always had food and I had these experiences and people that cared about me, but that is not indicative of the global reality. And the cold reality is the world will eat you if it can and people will take advantage of you. And I'm always struggling as a parent, you know, how do I, how do I convey this to my kids to kind of help them see it? without, you know, pushing them down into this, this state of despair where they feel hopeless. And I don't know how to do that sometimes of how to communicate that without really just paralyzing them with fear. Yeah. Well, I, I listened to Natalie, uh, one of your previous episodes in September, she's talking, was it the good girl? Was that what it was called? Uh, good ep- girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Girl, good girls. And you were talking about how you might prepare yourself to be more mentally sane as the new elections coming in next year. And I love what you said. You were just like, you know, I've only got one vote. That's what I can control. Often this uh, digital media gets me personally caught up in narratives that I have zero control over, you know, some huge national election, some federal legislation, climate change. And so for me, Shane, my lousy advice is get my kids into the physical world, into their community around human beings in situations that we do can exert a little bit of control. And 
also just being out, like being in the foothills, being around trees and birds and creatures helps ground you so much. And just being together away from your devices, one of the great gifts of raising the kids in Idaho for me was being able to drive about 40 minutes to a place where their phones didn't work. And mm -hmm. suddenly they just explode with creativity. Like they're just such natural creators, like making games with rocks or just, you know, whatever they're doing, like building whole complicated board games out of sticks and rocks around the campsite you know those are the happiest moments i can remember and when i'm just trying to sh build this foundation with them it doesn't have to be these really complicated discussions about you know critical thinking it's just saying you're safe here in this amazing planet you're just gonna get to be here for 80 years if you're super super lucky so let's embrace being with each other and try to recognize how lucky we are together and um you know, not focus as much as sometimes you feel when you have whatever CNN or Fox News or MSNBC on, and they're really uh, sophisticated at selling you fear and then some products and then some more fear and then some products. You know, um, I I was really struggling with this this situation because I've worked in social media for 16 years and it's not a healthy place. And, you know, that wasn't a plan. It was just, you know, I, I was, well, I wanted to be a writer and this is the place that it went. But because of that, I'm very, I'm very connected to what we call the global consciousness, which is witnessing everything. And in the last like five years, especially, I have not known how to handle the constant witnessing of atrocities and also very evident that there are groups of people who want to limit and stifle and, and harm. And also I had like, I, you know, this, I have empathy. I want to have compassion, but I honestly couldn't. I I was like, I don't know how to exist. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to just be without just always being just so sad for my humanity. And so I was reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, and I I don't think this is really a spoiler, but you know, it follows a very strange story of Eth of Ethan, um, who's just you know a simple man trying to basically escape his life. And he wants to go into this, you know, magical world um, that he's heard of. And he has these very random, imaginative, fun adventures that, um, but what happens is that he, he gets basically everything he wants, but he, you know, he has access to what I think you call the book of the world or the book of everything. I don't yeah, remember. This, this is, yeah, Cloud Cuckoo Land is a book within the book. This yes. silly little old Greek fable about yes. a guy who wants to travel to a utopia called yes. Cloud Cuckoo Land. But what ends, up he, what he ends up doing is he sees the world in its utter light and its utter darkness. Because of the people who are interpreting the story and how the end happens is that he, he just sees both. He sees it and then he goes back to living. And it was the most simple statement, but he just chooses to live. And it was like, it just gave me permission that I can see both sides. I can look and I can watch and I don't have to hide from them. And then all I have to do is live. And that is what, to me, I was like, that's what it means to be human. All of us are in that same place and we don't have to feel guilty because we can't help everyone. We just have to live and be good people. And 
I, I loved that a very, very simple tale could give that kind of insight. And I was, uh, so I'm, I just, I want to thank you for that because that was very unexpected. But I, sometimes you just need someone to, to put it in those weird black and white words that you hallucinate as you read and then, and it becomes clearer. Um, and that was beautiful. I just want to say thank you for that. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, in the novel, this this little fable trickles down through history, kind of like a chip down a Plinko board and Price is Right or something that's bouncing down through and it lands in the lapse of five different characters through time. And that that message that the world as it is, is enough um, resonates with them. And and for me, it is my it was my middle age book. You know, it's my um, we us three of us, hopefully pretty much everybody listening um, you know, we've grown up in a capitalist society where we are taught what you have right now isn't enough. But if you get these cool new jeans, then you'll be happy. Or, you know, if you get the Bora Bora, Shane, then you're really going to have a great yep. vacation. Like you have to get out of Meridian to have a special vacation. And um, that's that's artificial. It's okay. Of course, it's a fantastic and amazing that you, we get airplanes and get to travel to Bora Bora if you're lucky enough to do that. But it doesn't mean that that's your only vehicle to happiness. Capitalism functions on making you dissatisfied with what you have so that you'll go get some more stuff. And for me, um, I see, I listened to your awesome podcast with this TikTok dermatologist and <laughs> yeah. uh, there, Natalie brings up this great moment when he basically diagnosed skin cancer in like one of your family members through Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? it was super random. <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of like that. Social media is cool. Like you can do that stuff. I am sure, Natalie, that your work, especially like reaching out to moms or acknowledging like how shitty it feels when you're sick as a mom. I listened to that one. Like that's that's cool. That's connection. That's real. Like social media can make people feel less alone for sure, but it's also exists to show you a huge range of thing of uh, options that you could go chase. You know, it's like this uh, unlimited book of like, oh, it's a nice day in Idaho, but check out this photo of Iceland right now. And I'm like, oh shit, I should do that. Like I should do the hut to hut trek in Iceland. Like what if I die or my knee falls apart? I never get to go to Iceland. You know, I'm like, that like that's what Instagram gave me that day. That's sad. That's shitty. Like, what uh -huh. if I just never picked up my phone and walked outside? I was like, holy shit! There's like a rainbow over Table Rock, right? Uh, so I'm trying in in Cuckoo Land in particular, but mostly in everyday life to say, this is it. Like, what you have right now is enough. You are enough. You don't need to go chasing more stuff. It is such incredible gift. Like how many more Decembers are you going to get? Are the listeners of this podcast going to get? If you're crazy lucky, 40. Like that's not a lot. And uh, this is like, this is it. Like don't, don't keep beating yourself up for about what you don't have. Get out there and just be like, just lay down in front of, from the camel's back and be like, I can, I have legs. Like I get to go look at the sky right now. I have eyes to be able to see the clouds moving. And what an incredible gift it is to get to be on this planet. Planet is four and a half billion years old. Like to get to be here for the tiny finger snap of time that you get to be here is so extraordinary that uh, I want to try to keep not taking that for granted and wishing I was somewhere else doing more. So that, that was the idea with the Athon story. Like, I don't need to travel to cloud cuckoo land where all my needs will be met. This right here is as good as it's going to get. Mm -hmm. so how you said that made me think about 
kind of one of the realizations that I've had as I've gone through my middle ages, meditation has helped me to be present, right? To be, to just like you said, I'm going to focus on having legs. I'm going to focus on what's right here, right now. And simple ideas such as the past doesn't exist. It only exists as a memory in my mind. And the future is only imagination. It's an idea in my mind. But the only thing that's real is what's happening in this moment. And I started to when I started to look through the curtain and see, you know, what was behind that green curtain, it was, it, uh, I started to notice when people were telling me to wait to be happy. You can be happy when you achieve this, or you can you can finally be content and feel successful when, when you get to this point. And it's like this carrot that's dangled in front of you of happiness and contentment, but you're never going to get it. That is one of those lies that we're dealing with in modern times that I that's what I'm trying to teach my kids and teach myself of, hey, you don't have to wait to be happy. There's plenty right now to be absolutely just in awe over. No, yeah, I like how you water? Hot water amazing. Oh, my gosh. Like, it's so I, incredible that you can turn on a shower and get hot water. And a lot of the world still doesn't have that. So I, for me, like, I go for a run like in the rain yesterday, and I'm like trying. It's not always there for me. Sometimes I'm grouchy or whatever. But to be like, oh, my God, I turned this knob, and six seconds later, I'm standing in hot water. Like, the, the cavemen did not get to do that. It's it, just like a like a poppy seed cake you go to java and you're like this has got like sugar from god knows where cuba or something it's got poppy seeds from i don't know where they came from i'm gonna try to taste this thing rather than just cram it all in my mouth in one second and not even remember eating it you know that's the deal with java why are their cakes so big i mean i love it (laughs) but like i go in there i'm like these are these are very very large large portions um (laughs) uh you know we you, you mentioned you know, all we have is the present. That's what's what's real. At the same time, we have these places that kind of um, are are places that keep our past safe and what we what we've what we as humans have created. And you talk about libraries a lot in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, was that a really direct plan to kind of show these different versions of of libraries throughout time? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, uh, the book was a way for me to try to explore stewardship and what that means. Um, uh, as you know, I'm sure many of your listeners know, one of the many guests about becoming a parent is it removes you often. I sometimes fail, but it tends to remove you from the center of your own life. Like if you have to pee and your feet hurt and you're <laughs> whatever at the fairgrounds, it doesn't really matter because you're there for the kids. And it, especially when you can really step back away from it and reminds you that your role in life is to be a steward of the planet, of our culture enough so that our kids can grow up in a place where they feel safe and they can thrive and be the best versions of themselves. You're just a link in a long chain of generations. You know, our evolutionary purpose is really just to procreate and then get those kids safe and to procreation age and then we're kind of evolutionarily speaking, not as worthwhile anymore. You know, we can educate them. Uh, so I wanted to think about stewardship in terms of the planet, in terms of culture and stories, and um, all of that for me tied back through libraries. Um, growing up, I was so lucky enough to grow up in a place, I'm sure like many of your listeners, where you could go to a warm place in the winter and a cool place in the summer 
that was free to enter. You could use the bathrooms for free, and it allowed you to access the accumulated wisdom of the human race. Like, that's astonishing. Can you imagine going to the U.S. Congress now and be like, hey, in every community in the country, I want to open a building, and I want it to be free. I want it to be, like, full of books and CDs and movies and stuff. Like, they'd be like, what are you talking about? That sounds expensive. But we have that. Yeah. And uh, I took it for granted. It was really our third place. Mom was a teacher. And when she would need grading or was just totally maxed on us, she would dump us at the library, me and my brothers. And uh, I just assumed everybody had access to that. I didn't really understand that librarians were the ones keeping the lights on, writing funding for grants, filling the shelves with books. And so in many ways, I wanted to kind of... Um, it's like I'm ignorant about so many things. And I wanted to rectify my ignorance about that one thing to say like... Let's see if I can explore the idea of libraries in every way in this book, from the humblest little Idaho library with cracked windows and a leaking roof to this grand virtual library that this girl in the future in the novel experiences, which tries to pretend to be comprehensive. But of course, the idea of a comprehensive library, which humans have chased for centuries, is of course impossible. Uh, you know, the idea that Google, for example, is comprehensive or Wikipedia is is hilarious to me it's fun to explore but there's always things that are on there and untruths and mistruths and misdirections and so i play with all different kinds of stewardship of human culture through libraries in the book and try to remind people that you know it's there's a reason there's just an incredible series of hurdles that it takes for say an ancient greek text like this silly little cloud cuckoo land story that natalie was talking about to make it through all these vicissitudes of time to land in our hands in the present, you, know, you got to survive, survive tyrants and floods and mold and mm -hmm. little bookworms, actual bookworm are things, they eat paper, you know? And uh, so for, for these stories to arrive takes people. I used to think it just happened naturally, but it's people, these little heroes. So I'm playing with the kind of inverted hero stereotype. The old Greek myths have like Achilles is the hero. He's a slasher. He's, um, you know, he uses violence to become a hero. And often the heroes in this novel are people who make connections, who stitch things together, who are restorers, like this guy Zeno, who's, you know, using translation to haul this old Greek text up out of the past and this old language to bring it back into contemporary English for these young kids in this library. Um, and I hope people will maybe occasionally as they're reading the book reflect on, you know, what does the library do for our community? It is not in our interest to cheapen our communities. It's in our interest to provide safe, open places for uh, old folks if they've got some childcare duties to go, for teenagers who aren't old enough to go to a bar or get in trouble somewhere to go and feel safe. If you're opening a brand new business, you know, and you want to have a meeting in a place with fast internet for free, that's where you can go. If you don't have access to the internet as a family and you need to apply for a job or pay your taxes, the, the library is a place for you. So it enriches our communities in so many ways. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, let's pull out of that and just look at our little corner of the world. Um, and the situation with libraries across the country, I mean, that touched us recently in our valley. I mean, when you see, when you saw that going on, what was going through your your mind? I'm kind of curious. I try in my better days, if I have enough sleep, to not um, be judgy and think, you know, what are what threats are people feeling? Um, why do people feel so threatened by something? You know, for me, I'm like, if we're worried about like one page about masturbation in a book from 1997, and we want to 
you know, remove that from the library or challenge a whole library because of that, you know, what have you been on the internet lately? Like there's a lot of ways our children can access pornography and the library is not usually the place they're going to be doing it. Uh, so what is it that's threatening them? Often I think it's change. Um, you know, change is scary. The Treasure Valley has changed a ton since I've been here. And for my wife, it is bonkers. Like it is crazy to get stuck in traffic in places that were fields not very long ago. Oh, yeah. And that's really scary. Change is the only consistent music in the world, but it can scare us, especially as we get older. And um, so I do understand that. Um, it can be really unsettling uh, and you kind of want to drop, crank up the drawbridge and uh, I can understand some of that when I'm complaining about like I, we, we need a reservation. Like we've been in here for years. Blah 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 blah. You know. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, try to try to understand where people are coming from. I think our differences are what sell ads in the media. But um, you know, people, uh, whatever political spectrum you identify as, I think so many of our values are the same. We're 99.9 percent genetically identical to each other. And I think pretty much in terms of values, you know, we all believe uh, that our kids should be safe and we all believe that uh, we should be free to pursue um, curiosities and interests as long as it doesn't infringe or cause violence to other people. And so I try to remember that stuff as I get a little frustrated with say like yeah, the, the challenge at the Meridian Library. It's, it's an interesting time to, to try to like we talk a lot about not wanting to other people, you know, all, and, and that also puts the onus on us that we need to try to hear sides that we don't understand that that's a learned skill. I'm still, I'm still working on is okay. What am I not, what am I not seeing? You know, I think we're still, we're still working on that because in the end we do want to all come together and find a way to, to work together and to feel like this is a community uh, and sometimes, yeah. you know, Idaho's going through some stuff that that we're still learning that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the the play of the title, All the Light We Can See, ties in a bunch of stuff. Of course, it's referring to electromagnetic communication, first and foremost, you know, using invisible light to carry your radio waves. But it's also, there's so much light that uh, we don't see growing up. You know, I'm in my 40s before I realized how many advantages I had as a white person when I, I would get pulled over with my little short crew cut. And a cop would be like, hey, how's it going? And I wouldn't be afraid. And I think there are friends of mine who feel, you know, wherever they live, that if their skin is different color, they're in a totally different situation than me. You know, my uh, wife's parents, we moved to uh, uh, old folks home. And so I was moving stuff out of their house the other day. And, you know, I'm out there in front of the neighbors and I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm just carrying stuff out of my in-law's house and nobody else is around. But that's a totally different experience for somebody with darker skin than me. Like, uh, you know, just carrying a bunch of shit out of their house in broad daylight just seems different for other folks. And it took me so long to be able to use my imagination, my empathy to try to place myself in other shoes. So there's all kinds of stuff I'm still not seeing, all kinds of light that I'm not seeing. And every day that the folks who are listening to podcasts, you're trying, like everybody's trying, I think, to keep extending their empathy say, you know, my experiences are just one way of experiencing America right now. And um, try to remember there's lots of other experiences being had all around us. Do you think that everybody's trying to expand their empathy? Uh, I hope so. That I mean, people who are listening to a podcast yeah, are, maybe. I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, you, sometimes you're just looking for comfort or humor, yeah. but um, yeah, I think generally people who maybe are downloading podcasts are 
curious. I love what you said, though, that you use your imagination to help with your empathy. I don't think that I, I don't think people realize the importance of imagination. We talk about that as like for children, but imagination is just how we are able to live in different worlds. And we practice that through literature. That's why reading is so huge. That's why keeping narratives of, you know, diverse stories are so huge because our development of our imagination allows us to place ourselves in, in a situation so beyond ours. And that's one of the things I worry about with this new generation is that you don't have to have a lot of imagination on TikTok. In fact, you can't have a lot of imagination on TikTok unless you're creating. But when you're in a book, you know, everything is about imagining what's happening. And that that makes me nervous. Um, so I'd love that you you stated that because that imagination is what is going to allow us to have that empathy. I was just thinking of the idea yeah. of othering, right? Like um, there was a time in the book where, where the Nazis had captured this, um, this prisoner and they're talking to their own cadets and they just dehumanized this poor guy. Like they talked about him as literally less than human, this terrible, dirty creature. They just really, they used dehumanization as a tactic to help them do these terrible and awful things. And I think of othering, like there's so much othering going on. And even in our community, I mean, man, I'm just tired of politics. There's so much political othering and socio, you know, social othering. I just feel like that's a real threat is to say, I mean, I'm all about tribes. I think that there's a lot of value to tribes and support and group help and commonality. But I also think that there's got to be some kind of healthy limits to that. Like that can go too far. Have you seen examples? I mean, you've spent time in other countries, on other continents. Have you seen good examples of like intertribal cooperation or different cultures really working together well? Uh, yeah, that's a nice question. Uh, of course, absolutely. And, and I see it here too. Um, what Natalie's talking about using imagination to lift yourself up out of your own circumstances. Uh, it takes, um, sometimes you have to be well fed and well rested to do it. There's times when I'm in the grocery store and I'm three deep and I'm like, I, I gotta go. Like, And I'm stuck in my own experience too deeply. And you have to be able to take a breath and do exactly what you're saying. Lift yourself up out of the, your tribe of one in this case and say, I get it. Like everybody's trying to get their groceries. It's five o'clock. It's going to work out. Um, and so I do believe imagination is the vehicle for that. I think of what Emily Dickinson talked about reverie a lot. And um, yeah, it, it's an old person rant to say TikTok is bad. TikTok's evil. It's okay if you're exhausted after school and you need an hour of like just checking out some videos. Maybe you might even learn some stuff about like say dermatology or something from your buddy, you know, uh, when you're scrolling. But to it does not allow you time for reverie. That time when you're sitting out under a tree, uh, uh, you know, looking at the sky and you're alone and comfortable and safe with your own thoughts. And whether, however we find that as adults, whether it's through reading or for me, it's often just walking or running. Um, that's, I think, the time that you can start becoming a little more comfortable, a little calmer. You lower your, you know, you regulate yourself in some way through reverie, through daydreaming. Um, so it doesn't quite answer your question, Shane, about like, say, you know, the example of probably the country that I'm in the most besides the United States is France, because my books have been popular there. And there is a lot more slowness um, in terms of, say, eating, certainly walking back and forth to meals, 
talking, if you look uh, in a park on a beautiful day in Paris, you'll see a lot fewer phones, a lot more books, but a ton of conversations being had. Um, I think there is a real beauty to conversation uh, between two people. You guys are great at it on this podcast. There's a kind of regulation that happens between your two, like the little clockwork mechanisms inside of two people when they really trust each other and they can have a conversation that you need to allow the space in your day for that stuff. And I feel it too. Sometimes you're in a conversation where you're like, boom, 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 in your pocket and you're like, oh, is this bad? Like what's happening? Um, so the, the technology can sometimes be really destructive of chasing your moments for daydreaming, chasing your moments of connection with other people. Uh, so yeah, I have seen, of course, France is also can tear itself apart over nationalism. There's lots of scary stuff. They're kind of like five years behind us and some of this stuff with like a, you know, a real rise in nationalism and keep the others out, the othering that you're talking about. Um, but I do see in that culture and I see it, um, I see that sometimes here, I have to say like in Idaho, maybe more so than say in Los Angeles or something, I uh, we do a, a better job, at least the friends I have here, of getting away from your phones, getting outside, walking the dogs, not always letting um, technology interrupt us. Uh, of course, that's a huge generalization, but I think Idaho offers a lot of opportunities to be on the river, to be in the hills where um, maybe you are connecting with the people around you and with nature in a way that is really healthy. You know, we have to be able to live with technology, but finding spaces for reverie and for connection without those devices, it's really, really important. And I think that that's what we evolved to do as humans. So we need to remember, like, we are not animals that function super well being distracted every 30 seconds. Have you read the book, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy? Yes, I know, Kate. I haven't read the book, but I've read her journalism. And in fact, I think Shauna and I are even quoted in that book, maybe somewhere. Oh, really? Oh, I'll have to look back at that. Yeah, she's um, listening is super. I mean, I sometimes get way too excited, like, uh, and over talk, uh, like when my kids are talking and I mess up that one moment, especially with boys when they're like, being a little available. And I'm like, oh, and here's another idea I have. Here's some dumb story from my past. And uh, I need to remember like, gosh, listening is such an incredibly important gift of generosity. And so yeah, Kate's work helped remind me of that. Yeah. If it's same, I, as I was listening to it, it was a hard listen because I think I, I realized how much I had let social media change me in ways I, I didn't want to see and how easily I was distracted and how much I started craving that distraction, I think that's what was was a little yeah. frightening for me was that it had become, I think she compares it to like a cigarette, that this distraction, we crave it like people used to, you know, pat their clothes down looking for their cigarette to kind of move them a little bit out of their reality a little bit. And that's such a lost art. And so many of the themes like in your books of just being very, very present, I... I, I was reading, so I was reading that book at the same time as Cloud Cuckoo Land. And I was like, this is, this is the goal is to be able to be this present with people and, and to be able to live your life fully. And, and then, you know, we have this beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing of the internet and social media, but what are the negativities uh, of that? I think about it, you know, um, I wasn't on 
I had like, I used Instagram, the filters before Facebook bought it and stuff, but wasn't really on it until Cloud Cuckoo Land came out and the publicity department of my publishers like, you know, you should open an account. And what I noticed almost immediately is after I would make a post, then there's, it opens this door to be like, I want to see how people are receiving this post. So you, then you go back on and it builds a kind of loop in your head where you're not only trying to make something, but you're trying to see how people receive it almost in real time. Yeah. And that's a really dangerous thing for somebody who's making stuff for their job. Like that's what I do for a living. And I, um, if I'm writing not for the joy of writing, but I'm writing to find out how people perceive it, that can be a really dangerous place for an artist. So um, I got kind of very conflicted about the whole thing. And often will go maybe a month without looking at my Instagram, just because I'm trying not to build that loop in my head. I see it, especially with young girls, where so many of like, say my niece's posts, the comments are about how they look. Um, oh. And how could you not want to go back and like check to see like, oh, did somebody else thought I looked good? But that's just going to reinforce the next, that's going to wear off. And three days later, you're going to want to get that feeling and just the cigarette feeling you're talking about. So I'm, but I, my brain was fully formed when this stuff was invented. Like for our kids, their brains are still developing. So these tools, which are for-profit tools, you have to be really careful about um, how much we, you know, allow them access. I agree that we can't eliminate it entirely, but trying to find times to get them out and away from that. I was thinking about the idea of new technology. Like, um, you know, as society, we haven't learned how to use this stuff yet. There's so many things. Like, it was just like barely beta tested and then thrown in our laps and we're supposed to figure out how to use it. And as a group, we haven't done that. Like um, our generation, you said we were fully baked in our brains when we started, you know, being exposed to social media, but kids these days, they don't, they have no handbook, no guidebook in, you know, how to use it responsibly. But I think that every technology is like that. It does not get released with a manual of best practices. I think that we just have to create that as we go. Hopefully we get that done soon, sooner than later, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at look at AI. I'm thinking about teachers, you know, my office is really close to Boise AI. I can look out the window at it. Like there's teachers in there who maybe aren't equipped to even have the tools to understand how many of these papers that they were being handed in today had some help from ChatGPT and how many didn't. And um, oh, it, know, that's this, terrifying. What do you think about ChatGPT? Like as, a, as an author, when you're hearing about that for the first time, what was your response? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of neural nets is really interesting to me. The idea that, um, you know, you can scan all things written, basically, uh, including my books. You know, there's some copyright issues there that are pretty kind of uncool. These for-profit companies are just scanning everything, including yeah. your blog, your probably the transcripts of your podcast. And they're just harvesting them. We're just the beta testers community. I, I don't mind it as long as people have the space in their days and the income level to educate themselves about it and to be honest a lot of people don't like you're busy you're working you're driving a truck you're exhausted so, like we need to build a society where if we're not going to regulate this stuff as soon as it comes out we at least have the space and the time to educate our citizenry so that um, they have the tools they're equipped with the tools to think critically about how these tools are being employed Anthony, this has been an amazing conversation. Well, I think we can call him Tony now. Tony, Thank God now. To know. <laughs> all right, Tony. 
Tony, this has been great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for spending oh, your thanks, time with guys. us. Um, uh, where can people find you? Uh, do you have a social media presence? Do you have a like a um, certain avenue that you like to direct people to to find out more about you and what's going on? Oh uh, yeah, I mean, you can get my books from the library or <laughs> go to a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Old school. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. We could talk to you for, for hours, but um, it's fun to get to know a neighbor. Absolutely. Thanks for all your good work, you guys. And I hope you have a happy holiday with those kids. Awesome. All right. You too. Appreciate all right. It. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at the Boise Bubble. And for more information about our community, follow at Hello Meridian. See you next time. Thanks so much to our sponsors for supporting local dialogue. We encourage you to check them out online. Jesse Taff of Waypoint Real Estate Group is at www.waypointidaho.com. Bryce Gonser of Fulcrum Home Loans is at www.fulcrumhomeloans.com. And Dr. Dustin Portella of Treasure Valley Dermatology can be found at www.dermatologyboise.com and on Instagram at drdustinportella.